So we're in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We're coming to the, the end of the letter. And, and just by way of introduction, I want you to think about, uh, we're going to talk about the subject of marriage here in Ephesians 5. It's a very famous passage in Ephesians 5 on marriage. One of the, the highlights of the Bible on marriage, in fact, I often read it when I do weddings and talk through it. And what I want to focus on, though, is the letter of Ephesians that Paul wrote to the church. He really meant it to be read in one sitting to the church, uh, at least for the original audience in Ephesus. And what we've done is broken it up into 14 weeks. And in, in doing so, it can become very easy to uh, lose sight of the, the big picture, the overall picture of what what Paul is getting at. And so rather than just do a sort of topical message on marriage, what I really want to do is ask the question, why did Paul turn to marriage in chapter 5 after all of the rest of his discussion? So it's a little bit uh, more of a specific question that we're trying to answer this morning about what it means for our marriages to be Christ-centered. So I'm not going to give you 10 tips for, you know, how to make your marriage better. Um, you know, date your wife. That's a good one, husbands. Uh, but I'm not going to, that's not what this is going to be about. This is going to be about in the context of Paul's argument. Why does he turn to marriage and say what he says about marriage? Uh, and, and what's amazing is in the context of speaking about marriage, he reveals one of the most beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church, saying that the church is the bride of Christ. Um, something that we should consider very precious, that Christ is so devoted to us, He is so committed to us, that He considers us His bride. What an incredible thought. Well, let's read here the passage before us. Chapter 5 beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own flesh, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this passage is familiar to many of us, and it's really coming on the heels of what he had said in verse 21, that we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is really a modification of what it means in verse 18 to be 
filled with the Spirit. So the command way back in verse 18 is be filled with the Spirit. And one of the ways that Spirit filling is manifested is submitting to one another in the appropriate relationships. And so we see in chapter 5 and into chapter 6 what these appropriate relationships are in the household. He starts with wives saying, wives, submit to your husbands. And then he says, chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then uh, chapter 6, verse 5, bond servants, obey, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in a sincere heart as you would Christ. So in these household relationships of husbands and wives and parents and children and what they had in their Roman culture of masters and slaves, there was an order of authority and submission that was embedded in the household family. And what Paul is saying here is that when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in our divinely ordered relationships, we actually are manifesting spirit filling. It's an act of worship and it brings glory to God in Christ. And so our marriages are really not about us ultimately they're about the glory of christ which is why by the way i haven't made a big deal of it throughout the series but the overall summary of the book of ephesians is the glory of christ in the community of faith this is remember that in chapter one the church is exhibit a of everything god is doing to sum up all things in jesus and so what it means to be filled with the Spirit, if we go back to chapter 5, verse 15, what it means to walk wise, in a wise manner rather than foolish, is to submit to one another in divinely ordered relationships, and the one we want to talk about right now is husbands and wives. Ephesians provides a radical Christian understanding of marriage as one flesh relationship, going back to Genesis, and it mirrors Christ's marriage to his bride the church it ultimately points to what I just said the father is summing up all things in Jesus things in heaven and things on earth and one of the things on earth that's being summed up in Jesus is our marriages marriage is much more than just about us it's about the glory of Christ and when we understand that in our marriages then we begin to serve and love one another in the way that God designed and we find more contentment and human flourishing in our marriages than when we forget that. Why do marriages get into trouble? Well, there's lots of reasons marriages get into trouble, but I would say one of the major ways when people come to me to talk about marriage counseling is they've gotten their eyes off of Jesus and they've put their eyes directly on themselves and they say, I'm not happy, I'm not getting what I want, I'm not satisfied, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. It's all about me, me, me. And there's no faster way to ruin relationships than to make it about me, to make it about yourself. And so Paul here is saying, this is, in the con this is bigger than just marriage advice. This is in the context of the church, in the context of worship, in the context of spirit filling and walking in wisdom in this life. And all of it points to what God is doing to sum up all things in His Son. So even our marriages become a witness of what God is doing in Jesus to transform and make all things new. And that's incredible when you think about our marriages. 
that when the world looks at us and they see our marriages, they would see a picture and a reflection of the gospel. That's a little intimidating, to be honest. I might be content to say, Lord, just give me a happy marriage, right? Just let me live in peace. And he says, no, no, no. I'm not only going to do that. I'm going to make your marriage a picture of the gospel in such a way that when the world looks at your marriage, they want to say, why is your marriage different? Why is your marriage countercultural? They don't use that word. What they say is, why is your marriage working and mine isn't? Well, it's not because we're so great or we're so wise. It's because of Jesus. He makes all the difference in the world. Well, let's get into this. Gospel-motivated wives, verses 22 to 24. Maybe one of the most hated verses in our English Bibles in our generation. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And this idea of submission to authority, our culture hates it. It's not just wives hating to submit to husbands. We don't want to submit to governing authorities. We don't want to submit to those who are over us in the workplace. We don't like submission. Why? Our culture has decided that submission equals inferiority. That if you have authority, you must be superior. And if you are submitting, then you must be inferior. The other thing our culture does is says, well, authority is equal to tyranny. There is no such thing as good authority. Our culture says all authority must be bad. And so we would never submit to it. Now, we have good reason to distrust some of the authorities in our life, don't we? We, not, we very much may not be happy with uh, Romans 13 governing authorities where Paul says submit to governing authorities. And we look at our governing authorities and say, well, they're either grossly incompetent or incredibly evil. And why would we submit? Now, we might think we have an out, but when you... Think about Paul writing to the Romans who lived in Rome. Just a reminder, they lived in Rome in the 60s. Not the 1960s, the 60s, A.D., 60s. And guess who was the emperor of Rome in the 60s? Good old Nero. And Paul is saying, submit to governing authorities. Okay, well, maybe we don't have an excuse because Nero was a whole lot worse than any of our governing authorities. So, this idea of submission is incredibly opposed to our culture. But when we see this word submit, be subject to or submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, we see that this submission is voluntary first it's not achieved by breaking the will nor by forcing actions you see that it's directed to the wives not the husbands husbands are never commanded to exercise authority in the bible can't find a verse wives submit to your husbands it's voluntary 
Second, we see that men and women have equal dignity, so it's not an inferiority thing to submit. Both are created in the image of God. Back in chapter 4, verse 24, he says that you've put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Both men and women. And we see this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. That men and women are equal. That they're created in the image of God. That we're saved the same way by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's not a different way of salvation. Paul says that because we're in Christ to the Galatians, there's neither male nor female. It doesn't mean the distinctions are erased. It means that there is no difference in our access to God as men and women. So we have to understand this big picture to say, what is Paul meaning when he means submit? Well, God has given different roles to men and women. And God has appointed these roles for His glory in the marriage and to proclaim His gospel to the world. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This famous passage about the incarnation and hearing the motive of the eternal Son of God who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and used for his own advantage. So, Jesus, the incarnate Son, before He was named Jesus, was the eternal Son, who was forever with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's equal to God. We heard it in Paul's language here. He's equal. And yet, what does He do? He submits. And what Philippians 2 teaches us is that Christ's submission to the Father does not mean that He's somehow inferior or deserves less honor and glory. Why? Because He's highly exalted and given the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the submission of Jesus to the Father in the incarnation is not because He's inferior. No, He's equal. But because He had been given a role to accomplish in the plan of salvation, to die in our place and to be buried and to rise again and to bring us new life. And what Paul is teaching here in Philippians is that it is just as godlike to submit as it is to exercise authority. So women never think that submission means you're inferior. This is in the context of a husband-wife relationship that women are to submit notice that he says submit to your own husbands he's not telling women to submit to every man 
on the planet, that's not what this is teaching and that's not what the Bible teaches. But rather, wives are to submit to their own husbands. And he gives us the motive. Turn back to Ephesians. I want you to see this with your eyeballs. I don't know why that's more visceral to say eyeball than eyes. I don't know why. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord Jesus. So here's the motive. It's a gospel motive. Wives, as you submit to your husbands, really the one you're submitting to is the Lord Jesus. Because He's the one who's commanded this. This doesn't mean that, what Paul's getting at is not, it doesn't mean that you submit just like you would submit to Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's saying the motive of your submission to your husbands is that really you're submitting to Jesus when you do so. It's the same motive when in all of our relationships, when we submit to governing authorities, Paul in Romans 13, if if we were to go there, he's saying the reason you submit to governing authorities is because God has appointed them and you're ultimately submitting to God. So be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord Jesus. Why? Verse 23, your husband is your God-ordained head. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, male headship, complementarianism, is, is not merely a construct of this world. It came before the fall. It was the way God intended things to be. He called it very good when he created men and women. And the word head here, as husbands are head of the wife, It's not establishing sexist, chauvinistic stereotypes. Instead, what does he compare it to? The Lord Jesus Christ's headship of the church. So if if we're looking at marriages and we're saying, oh, for a husband to be the head, the leader, then it's some sort of, you know, I sit in my den and, and I watch my football and my wife brings me a frosty beverage. And make sure the dishes are clean out of the sink. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That might be what some of you men want, but that's not what Paul is talking about. What he's saying is he's saying, you want to see what headship looks like? Oh, you better look at how Jesus is the head of the church. That's what headship looks like. Christ displays his headship by loving the church and giving himself up for the church. He himself is the savior of the church. Now, husbands are not the savior of their wives, so the the analogy is not one for one. Husbands, though, who do not lead their wives, who are not the head, are abandoning their God-given role. And in my experience, abdication is far more common than domination in marriages. But domination happens, and it's ugly and it's sinful when husbands act like tyrants. Headship, let me just say this, husbands, headship is more about controlling yourself or your own nature than it is about controlling your wives. It's not about controlling your wives and exercising authority. Like I said, there's no command to exercise authority in Scripture over your wives. Rather, it's a voluntary submission of the wives to their husband 
knowing that ultimately I'm submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and it's an act of worship, an act of being spirit-filled for His glory. And he concludes in verse 24, wives, that your model of submission is to look to the church. Now the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, it's not a one-for-one analogy. There's a difference between the church's submission to Christ and wives, your submission to your own husband. The husband, as I said, is not the wife's savior. But how is the church a model? Well, because the church's submission to Christ is is free and voluntary. Uh, Let's turn back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. I want to walk through this a little bit slowly. Chapter 1, verse 22. He, the Father, put all things under His, the Son's feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church. So Jesus is the head of the church. The Father has put everything under the feet of Jesus, and Jesus is the head of all things, and it's for the benefit of the church. Chapter 1, verse 22. The church gladly submits to Christ's headship, to His ruling authority. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As the church is part of the body of Christ, submitting to Christ's rule, the church experiences Christ's presence, settling down and being at home in their hearts, dwelling in their hearts by faith, and His love knowing how high and wide and deep and long this love of Christ is. The church then receives gifts from Christ, chapter 4, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And when we receive these gifts, it enables the church to grow into maturity. And then the church responds, chapter 5, verse 19, with gratitude addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord Jesus with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Christ is the head of the church and how we as the church submit to our Savior. And that picture is the motive for wives to submit to husbands and it says verse 24 that they submit in everything meaning generally every area of life this is because wives you're one flesh with your husband it's also not conditional on his loving you that's the hard one isn't it it's easy to submit when someone loves us and we're convinced they have our best interests in mind It's hard to submit when trust is broken, when things are difficult. And more on that in a little while. But it doesn't mean that wives, you submit to your husbands when they ask you to sin. 
We can't use this phrase, submit to your husbands in all things, to undo what he had taught in the previous four chapters in the book. This is why I wanted to ask the question, why did Paul place marriage here in chapter 5? This phrase has to agree with everything Paul previously taught about not using your words as weapons, but instead building up. Being kind-hearted to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. All of the, the life of chapter 4 and walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, Paul says now here in the context of marriage you have an opportunity to do so. To live this out. This person that you're closer to than anyone else in the world. The gospel can transform that relationship. And make new that relationship. Now, gospel-motivated husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wow. Again, we cannot love our wives in exactly the same way as the Lord Jesus has loved us. He's God and He's perfect. But Christ is your model of love, husbands. Christ gave Himself up for the church. Chapter 5, verse 2. He took the initiative. It's a sacrificial, self-giving Love. That's what it means to lead. Is to initiate with love. Sacrificially. Giving of yourself. Christ is the foundation of your love. Verse 25. We love because He first loved us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, guess what, husbands? You're part of the church. And Christ loved you in an incredible way. Oh, that you would know how high and wide and deep and long the love of Christ is so that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And when you say, how do I love my wife? How can I love her? Well, look to Christ. How did He love us? Then we have a model. He's not only the model, He's the, the foundation. We cannot love unless we have been loved. That's 1 John 4. We love because He first loved us. But the goal then of our love, it must be the same as Christ's goal. Paul goes on to a rabbit trail here. He gives the command to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, but he really wants to get to Christ in the church. And so he goes down a rabbit trail. Verse 26, that Christ might sanctify her, the church. He's not talking about husbands and wives anymore. He switched to Jesus and the church. And this is incredibly profound. Th that He, Jesus Christ, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What an incredible, incredible teaching this is. That the Lord Jesus loved us, the church, in such a way that He is going to take us and present us to Himself 
And I think in the presence of God the Father, if we go back to chapter 1 where God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be what? Holy and blameless in His presence. Now here in chapter 5, Paul says the Lord Jesus is washing us with the water of the Word that He might present us, the church, before His own presence, holy and blameless. Do you see the connection? This is what Jesus is doing, and Paul can't help but think about we are caught up in the plan of God. And the Spirit is filling us, back to chapter 5, verse 18, the Spirit is filling us in such a way that this is happening through the ministry of the Word of God, just like we're doing right now, looking at the Word. And Jesus is going to present us. It's not an option. It's not a maybe it might happen if we do some good things. No, this is His plan and He's going to accomplish it. Now we have good things we're to do as a result of that. And that's why He gets into wives and husbands. But what a motive. What an incredible motive to think this is how Jesus has loved us. Of course, this is how we ought to love others. Of course. But isn't it easy to forget? It's easy to forget. Husbands, your goal should be to enable your wife to know the fullness of God's grace in Christ in her life. If we're to love our wives in this way, it would be that we are, we're not the ones who are responsible to sanctify her. That's Jesus sanctifying us, the church. And that word sanctify means to set apart to God for His service. But just as Christ washed us with the water of the Word, the Gospel, and sanctified us, and is in the process of sanctifying us by the Spirit, husbands, you must be utterly committed to the total well-being especially the spiritual welfare of your wives. Presenting her to Himself in splendor. This is at the second coming, the Lord Jesus is going to gather up the church and He's going to present her in all her glory to the Father. Here on earth, the church is not always exquisite, is it? It's not always in splendor, in glory, John Stott in his commentary says, often the church is in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and rejected. We're often accused rightly of shortcomings and failures, but it won't always be this way because the Lord Jesus is more committed to the church than you or I ever will be. He loves the church. He gave himself up for the church, for us. By implication, of course, we should love the church because this is what Jesus loves. This is why we gather because our Savior has loved us and gave Himself up for us. But the word splendor, or here in the ESV that He might present the church to Himself, yeah, splendor, is this opposite of being dishonored but honored. What an incredible thought that Jesus is going to give us the place of greatest honor at His right hand when He presents the church to the Father. Now husbands, this is the motive. This is the model. What should we be doing with our wives as an act of love? 
giving them the place of honor, not dishonor. Not dishonoring them, but honoring them. So he goes on to say, verses 28 to 32, love your wives as yourself. He brings it back from this little rabbit trail in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. This is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Your wife is your dearest and nearest neighbor. And he says, this is what we're to do. To to love our wives as we already love our own selves. Husbands, your wife is one flesh with you. And just as you nourish and cherish your own body because you already do love yourself, you ought to love your wives and nourish and cherish them. This is, after all, verse 30, what Jesus does with his own body. Again, Paul takes, he can't get away from Jesus and us being the church, and now he switches to the, from the bride of Christ to the body of Christ, and he says, the Lord Jesus feeds and nourishes his own body, the church, with the word by the Spirit, of course you're going to nourish and cherish your own body and feed it and care for it. You should do the same with your wives. This is what we experience day by day from Jesus as He cares for us. He's the great physician. He's the wonder of a counselor, Isaiah tells us. He's the gentle shepherd A bruised reed he won't break and a smoldering wick he won't put out. He says, in him you find rest for your soul. This is the kind of of head he is. This is the kind of husband he is to his church. What an incredible, incredible Savior. If you don't know Jesus, come to Christ. Put your faith in him experience this love and this relationship and this tenderness and this kindness. Paul says his kindness is what leads us to repentance. That's what brings us to repentance is we know we deserve his anger and his judgment, but instead he gives us his kindness and his love. and says he'll forgive all your sins and wash you whiter than snow, do all of this, present you in glory to the Father. Come to Christ if you don't know Him. Back to marriage. It's, I don't mind taking these rabbit trails because Paul is. He's talking about marriage, but he's talking about so much more than marriage in this passage. Just as Christ does the church because we're members of His body, then he quotes Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is profound, verse 32. Paul, throughout the book of Ephesians, has been talking about the mystery. This revelation in Christ that was previously hidden. Now he says marriage is a part of it. Well, he's saying that really marriage is not the end. The mystery is still, I'm saying, he says, verse 32, it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery is not marriage. Marriage has been there from the beginning since Adam and Eve. 
The mystery is that every marriage from the beginning was ultimately pointing to this reality that was going to happen between Christ and His people. He was going to marry His people. He was going to be committed to His people in covenant relationship, pledged to them for their good and their benefit. Isn't that, that is mind-blowing to think of how great the love of Jesus is for us. And he says, husbands, this is your model. This is your foundation. And this is the goal of all of human history. It's so much bigger than your marriage. It's the gospel and the summing up of all things in Jesus. Nevertheless, your marriage is a part of that. And so love your wives as Christ loved the church. Marriage, then, is a proclamation of the gospel. Having marriages that aren't Christ-centered, they don't accurately proclaim the gospel. But marriage itself as an institution is a proclamation of the gospel. I would say this, wives, when your dignity is measured in your wealth or your career or how many children you have or the size of your house or your personal accomplishments or your husband's reputation, that's not placing Christ as the head goal of your marriage. Husbands, when you abuse your headship by domination or by abdication, when you don't love your wives, but instead mistreat them, seeking your own good, first and foremost, your own career, your own path, your own hobbies, then you're worshiping yourself rather than Christ. Either way, it's not being Spirit-filled. Either way, it's not walking as wise, chapter 5, verse 15. It's walking as unwise. It's, it's, it's like we've seen so many times. It's like looking at that old self that's dead and buried in the ground and saying, I'm going to go live in the casket. I'm going to go live in the grave thinking that life is better there than what I have in Jesus. Jesus came to bring life as God intended it to be. Abundant life. Human flourishing. The good life. The life that is shalom, peace the way God intended it to be. And part of what He does is He brings it into our very homes in our marriages when Christ is at the center. When His person and work is motivating our marriages, our relationships. And so He returns to verse 33, the Gospel implications. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul says, let each of you love your wives. Every husband must love their wives. None of us are exempt. And you must give your wives loving service so she might become what God intends for her. We cannot abuse our authority. In doing so, we rob our wives of their splendor. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The, the word here, respect, is the same word back in verse 21 of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Respect, reverence. Now this isn't a slavish fear. This word only reflects what a wife, what not only reflects what a wife 
does when she submits, but also her attitude in doing it respectful. And we kind of intuitively understand this, don't we? In ungodly marriages, in marriages that that are not rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, marriages that are unhealthy, we could say, we see men try to dominate with strength and women trying to control men with shame rather than respect and rather than sacrificial love. But a gospel-driven marriage, a uh, the, the husband has no right to intimidate or ignore his wife, and a, a gospel-driven wife has no right to diminish or shame her husband. This is what Paul's getting at. Now, we're all guilty of this, aren't we? I imagine for all of us here who are married, we've been guilty of this, trying to either dominate without love or diminish in shame without respect praise the lord we have the gospel as the answer to that jesus came in our place and was perfect because we weren't so even our marriages that are meant to be a picture of the gospel are desperately needy for the implications of the gospel the reality is is i'm not the husband i should be Jesus is the perfect husband. And I need the gospel. I need Jesus for when I sin so that I can ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation, knowing that I have it in Jesus. Wives, it's true of you as well. You're not the the woman you ought to be. We lay down our sword against sin, the spiritual warfare he's going to get to in chapter 6, and we lay down our life at the same time. We're going to be battling sin the rest of our lives, even in the context of our marriages. Which is why he had said back in chapter 4 that when we do sin against one another, we need to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave us. It's one thing to put the standard of marriage as Christ in the church. What a glorious standard. But what do we do when we don't make that standard? What do we do when we don't live up to it? Oh, we flee to Jesus. And we ask for His forgiveness. And we go to our spouse. And we ask them for their forgiveness. What about unhealthy marriages? What about split marriages and separations? What about these feelings of he doesn't really love me or she doesn't really respect me or our marriage is at an end or we're not one flesh. We're two individuals living under the same roof. What do we do about that? Well, I have a few words of advice from Scripture. First, start by seeing your own sinfulness and desperate need for a Savior. Can I just say that your spouse is not your biggest problem? You are. Is that too offensive? It's what Scripture says. You see, when you begin to understand that you are your own biggest problem apart from Christ, that you need the the work of Jesus in your life by the Spirit to change you, it will then give you a heart to grant your spouse the same kind of grace that God has given you. Imagine looking at your spouse 
Rather than with criticism and ready to catch them and how they failed, imagine looking at them with grace. Just giving them what they don't deserve. Serving them and loving them. You might think that's impossible. But that's exactly what Jesus did with us. And when did He love the church? He loved the church when we were at our worst. Not when we were at our best. Second, remember mercy triumphs over judgment. Like sugar sweetens a bitter drink, like coffee or tea, mercy sweetens the bitterness out of marriage. Jesus said, Matthew 5.44, love your enemies. I remember one of my mentors, John Carson, using that example in marriage counseling where they say, well, I don't love her, I hate her, she's my enemy. Well, what did Jesus command you to do with your enemies? Love them and pray for them. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Be ready to forgive. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. That's just a reality. When we know that we've been forgiven, we forgive. We don't cancel people. We forgive. But forgiveness is costly. I I spoke of this in chapter 4. Sometimes it costs more than what we think we can give, and so we need to run to Jesus and remember how much we've been forgiven. Forgiveness requires repentance from the one who sinned and mercy from the person sinned against. Instead of saying, pay me what you owe, you say, I'm going to cover this sin. I'm going to absorb it, the cost of the sin. I'm not going to bring it up to you again or to God again or to myself again. That's difficult. But holding on to a spouse's sin and hanging it over their head like an old arrest warrant ready to be prosecuted, that's what the Bible calls bitterness. In contrast, what God does with our sins is He remembers them no more, Isaiah says. The God who doesn't forget anything says He's not going to bring them up. In fact, Micah 7, He throws them on the ocean floor. Now, He doesn't really do that. They're they're not on the ocean floor, literally. It's a picture to say He is removing them from us. This is what we ought to do when we forgive our spouses. It's say, I'm not going to bring up what you did to God anymore or to myself anymore or to you anymore. It's as if it's on the ocean floor. It's gone. I can't even dredge it up. We need to speak the truth in love as well. We know that God pursues sinners. He pursued us. But God also uses sinners to pursue sinners. Galatians 6. If you see your brother caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you too be tempted. That command is absolutely important in marriage that when we go to our spouses when we see sin in them that we say i love you this is not to be a criticism but i see sin and i want to come to you in a spirit of gentleness to to tell you about this and finally remember to always look to christ hebrews 12 1 and 2 Set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
John Murray Machane, a pastor from a previous generation, said, for one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. What a great bit of advice. He died in his 30s, which makes me feel really old now that I'm, you know, 49 and a half, headed to 50 next year, so... Well, that's all I have to share with you today on marriage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the marriages in this church and for the signs of health and life that, that I've witnessed even in this past year and a half. Thank you for the new marriages, those who've uh, joined together in marriage since we even have become a church and I pray for these marriages, Father. I pray that Christ would be at the center. That they would see their marriages are ultimately not about them, but about the gospel and about worship and about Christ presenting her church, His church, His bride before you without spot and blemish, blemish and that we are a part of of what you're doing to make all things new. It's so much bigger than us. I pray for those marriages that are hurting. Those marriages that have animosity and trouble. Father, that you would, by your Spirit, remind them of everything that they have received in Jesus that you would be, bring healing, that, Father, you know how to raise the dead. You raised our Savior from the dead. You can raise marriages from the dead. I pray for those who are single, who haven't found a spouse, who may desire to be married. Father, would you give them grace and peace? Would you use them in this season of singleness for your glory? They are have an opportunity to be useful for the kingdom in a way that married people cannot. Paul teaches us that. For those that have lost spouses who are widows and widowers, Father, would you bring them comfort by your Spirit? You know how to do that, Father. You know how to give the peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Those who've been divorced, those who are, have experienced the loss and the heartache, Father, You know how to heal. You know how to restore the years the locusts have eaten. And would You do this by Your grace? Would You do it in such a way that You get all the glory and that we rejoice? And we celebrate and share the stories of your goodness to us. As we turn to the table now, may it be a blessed reminder of that day when the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to happen. And we're going to be with our Savior, our husband Jesus. And we're going to feast and celebrate. And he's going to present us in glory to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.